Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Institute for Government. My name is Nick Davies, and I'm a programme director here. Uh, thank you very much for joining us for this panel debate on how the newish uh, UK government uh, can implement a infrastructure strategy for the UK. So the new government has set out some ambitious plans for infrastructure and its fiscal rules, which there have been suggestions could be loosened even further, allow it to substantially increase capital investment over the coming years. The government has already pledged uh, support for HS2, but we're going to get a much clearer idea about the government's vision for infrastructure more generally when it publishes the UK's first national infrastructure strategy next month. But it's much easier to make pledges than it is to complete projects. Uh, and as a new report by the Institute uh, out today shows, uh, the government since 2010, or the government since 2010, have consistently uh, underspent their capital budgets for a variety of reasons. Uh, the capacity of the civil service, uh, overly optimistic uh, delivery uh, timelines, and the diversion of uh, capital investment to cover day-to-day -day spending needs. Uh, projects have also been hamstrung by poor coordination between uh, central government, uh, the wider public sector and industry. Uh, so how can the Treasury coordinate infrastructure decision-making across Whitehall? How can uh, Whitehall and central government work closely with combined authorities, sub-national transport bodies, local authorities, LEPs and others uh, to deliver uh, the infrastructure the country needs? And how can the government provide industry with the certainty that it needs and how can it build constructive relationships with industry to deliver these projects? So to discuss these issues, I'm delighted uh, to be joined by this fantastic panel. Um, so our first speaker will be uh, Bridget Rosewell, who is a commissioner with the National Infrastructure Commission. Second will be Tom Thackeray, the Director of Infrastructure at the CBI. Uh, and our final speaker will be Karen Smart, the Managing Director of East Midlands Airport. I'm shortly going to hand over to our panellists, who are each going to make short introductory remarks. I'll then probably ask them a, a couple of questions based on their remarks uh, before opening it up uh, to questions from the audience. So do think about your questions now while our panellists are speaking. Um, before I do so, though, uh, I'd like to welcome uh, Billy Roden from uh, Midlands Connect to make some opening remarks. Uh, thank you, Nick, and good afternoon. Uh, my name is Billy Roden from Midlands Connect. We are the sub-national transport body that represent the East and the West Midlands. Uh, our day job is to research, develop, and rec recommend transport schemes like our Midlands Engine Rail, uh, which you might have heard of before, and we're hoping to see good news uh, in the upcoming budget. We're delighted to support an event around the National Infrastructure Strategy. We've also heard a lot about levelling up, um, so I'm hoping you'll hear some great ideas from the panel. I'm hoping to hear some from you, the audience, and I'm sure we'll get some online via social media too. So thank you all for coming. Thank you, William. And that reference social media has helpfully reminded me to say, uh, <laughs> please, everyone here, uh, you're welcome uh, to tweet. We'll be live tweeting from the IFG events account, uh, and we will be using the hashtag IFG infrastructure. Right, without further ado, over to you, Bridget. Okay, thank you very much, and thank you for inviting me at this propitious moment where we are waiting for the budget on March the 11th, where we are expecting a national infrastructure strategy to be announced. Uh, and obviously, from the point of view of the National Infrastructure Commission, it would be great if that strategy simply accepted all our recommendations and um, put them in place. 
And I think there are some, but there are some particular aspects of that that I just want to kind of draw to your attention because I think that none of this happens just because the Treasury said so. That may be a surprise to people in Treasury, but nonetheless, my experience is that uh, the things that really happen are when there's a whole number of people with different perspectives and different um, ways of thinking about things, but all kind of driving in the same direction. And I think that the elements of that that we all need to kind of get behind, if you like, are firstly to agree some long-term ambitions and objectives. The big projects over which we've been arguing and debating for so long, like Crossrail, for example, I know it's late, I know it's over budget, but my goodness, late compared to 1974 when we first started uh, planning for this. Uh, HS2, over which debates will continue as well. But unless we, we need to generate consensus, and that means top-down and bottom-up. I'm really interested in the fact that Midlands, Transport for the North, all of these people are putting together their own programmes, and that's a bottom-up process. East-West Rail, which has now got its uh, TWA for the middle section and has um, got an agreed route after consultation for the Bedford to Sandy section, which was the one that got built over after the line was closed, that was not something that came out of central government. It was something that, you know, did it come out of a regional plan either, incidentally, since it cuts across regional boundaries. It came out of people in that area thinking that that was something that needed to be done and pushing for that. And then the top-down beginning to uh, kind of buy into that and feeling that it was harder to say no than it was to say yes. So that's one important aspect, make it hard to say no. Generate a long-term consensus about the direction of travel, but trying not to get too much detail involved in so many programs at the beginning. The other thing that, that we do is we say, we might do this, and then we spend years and years and years trying to get the best possible solution to that particular problem, by the which time it's out of date. So trying to stop the best being the enemy of the good is one of my own personal mantras. The other thing is to, um, as well as creating that consensus, then the other thing is obviously to create funding mechanisms to put behind it. And that's the other thing which I would really like to see some steps towards in the budget. It won't create a, a, you know, an agreed funding plan out to 2050 or, or any you know, 30-year programme, but something which sets in place some mechanisms by which we can get to long-term funding relationships and something which helps both local authorities, local planning uh, um, mechanisms, sub-regional transport bodies, as well as departments and businesses, the supply chain, to invest in its own ability, I think is incredibly important. The stop-start, one of the key elements in the decision after all of the announced decision on phase one of HS2 was that the supply chain was now so dependent upon this and the way that it had come, come and gone that actually, you know, we really kind of made it very difficult <coughs> for companies to survive if that didn't happen. So how do we make those long-term funding um, commitments to people who are capable of making those local decisions as well. One of the things in the National Infrastructure Assessment was that uh, we thought that we needed about 43 billion of local transport spending. Some people have tried to tack that onto HS2, but it isn't. It's very much more about the intra-city things that need to be done, commuter networks, buses, potholes, 
all of the things which certainly can't be done very effectively out of Whitehall and can't be done very effectively by anybody if there isn't a sensible long-term plan. Chucking money in right at the end of one financial year and then taking it away for the next one is not the way to do anything effective. So the Treasury needs to set out those parameters and that long, the envelopes, if you like, the long-term perspectives. They might, of course, increase the fiscal remit. Uh, National Infrastructure Commission works for 1.2% of GDP. We have worked to that. That's, um, we haven't, uh, on the grounds that trying to do something different would have been foolish, but if they come along and ask us to work to a higher remit, I'm sure we'd be willing to do that 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 is very much in their gift. So I think those are the things that need to be done. I'll stop there. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you. Tom. Thanks very much. Um, yeah, and a lot of commonality, I think, with what Bridget said. I think, I mean, the first thing to say is that it would be nice if the government uh, actually did deliver the first part of it and deliver the national infrastructure strategy. It, it will be 20 months, I think, by the time the budget rolls around since um, the uh, National Infrastructure Commission's um, assessment was first published and that's really a long time for businesses and consumers to wait for uh, the government to set its stall out um, and the national infrastructure assessment um, you know I go to a lot of events like this and this is get pretty much universal backing from the people in audiences that it's a thorough piece of work it identifies the right types of project is within the fiscal remit that was um, delivered to it so uh, it, it deserves it deserves a response but once that national infrastructure strategy is there, we obviously need to do a better job at delivering the projects within it. Um, our record could definitely be better when it comes to the delivery of major infrastructure projects. Um, delays and cost overruns fill um, our newspapers on a, a daily basis. You know, we talked about Crossrail, HS2, could add Hinkley points potential for delays to Heathrow, you know, this is, these are major infra infrastructure schemes which matter to business and the productivity of our country. Um, in fact, I th apparently a third of the government's major projects portfolio is classed as unfeasible or in doubt at the moment, which is um, something of a, a damning indictment. And 75% of energy projects uh, tend to overspend by at least 20%. So, as I said, could do better. And that's really important because it undermines confidence. Uh, it undermines confidence with consumers, but also with businesses. So the last time we surveyed our members, um, a good two-thirds of them had no confidence that road or rail infrastructure would, would improve over a five-year parliament period. Um, so that needs to improve. Some of the issues that we need to deal with in, in making those improvements would be um, getting a better infrastructure pipeline in, in place, um, some of the projects currently in the pipeline, as I said, are not feasible. Uh, and 60% of the pipeline is just programs of work without the necessary detail for the construction sector in particular to gear up towards procurement. So the pipeline needs looking at. Secondly, the fragmentation of decision-making, sort of picking up on some of the themes that Bridget uh, talked about. You know, even within transport, you have multiple agencies, all with the same remit of improving connectivity, but often sort of driving against one another, um, all reporting into the Department for Transport. So something isn't working there. And the, you know, with the Department for Transport having accountability there, that's sort of coordination of those, of those actors needs to, uh, needs to be built up. Uh, and allied to that is 
as we move to greater devolution, and I do hope there are moves towards greater devolution, particularly of, uh, of, of transport spending um, with the budget and the spending review, um, the rules of the game around that devolution need to be made clear. At the moment, it seems to be done in fits and starts. Uh, no area particularly sure about what it needs to do to get its hand on some of that um, decision-making power or the, or the money associated with it. And then the final thing that I think needs to be addressed is obviously the sort of scare, skills and capacity both in the private sector but also within um, public sector agencies and that's at a local level and in central, central government. And um, you know, commercial skills from procurement into contract management needs to be improved across the board and invested in and there's some good work going on in the cabinet office at the moment with things like the outsourcing playbook um, being implemented but actually that outsourcing playbook doesn't extend um, to uh, commercial projects in construction and infrastructure space so uh, there's definitely definite opportunities to do to do more there the private sector needs to play its part as well i think you know the construction sector has been its own worst enemy bidding against each other at a loss at times um, and sort of uh, re-emphasising the bad, the poor behaviours, which means that procurement is done uh, as a race to the bottom on cost, rather than looking at the quality that can be delivered. So I think I'll leave it there. Actually, I think those are the three three main main problems that I wanted to highlight. Brilliant, thank you. And to our final speaker. So for me, um, given the business perspective, running an airport is very much like running a small town. Um, we've got our own roads, we've got um, our own bus station, we've got a business park, we generate our own energy. So for that reason, there's very few areas of the infrastructure policy that, that actually don't impact us, so it's of real interest. It's for that reason we really urge for a strong infrastructure policy framework integrated across government, and I think that's the key to it. It's got to be across government departments so that airports really can deliver the true potential as regional hubs for jobs, for skills, and for um, transport and connectivity. We sit not only in the very heart of our region, East Midlands Airport, but also at the very heart of the country. 90% of the population of England and Wales are within a four-hour drive of the airport, and that's really key for, for the business that we do. We're an airport of choice for just under five million passengers, um, flying 90 destinations, mainly in Europe and mainly the leisure market. And we've got a really loyal demographic of local customers who are looking for short-haul flights, but really quote the, the, the fact that we're easy to get to and easy to get through as an airport. That said, we're only easy to get to if you're under your own steam generally or on one of the local buses that we've actually pumped prime to get to the airport. The integrated transport connectivity really isn't there for the airport and therefore we miss out on a much broader market. But in addition to the role as a passenger airport, we've got a nationally significant role as um, uh, for, for cargo and international trade. We're the largest pure cargo airport in the UK, the seventh largest in Europe, and we um, pass through the airport every year 370,000 tonnes, over 1,000 tonnes a day, or a million packages a day, if you want to be able to visualise that, an estimated value of £40 billion. So we're a global trade hub um, for markets, not only in Europe, but for the US and for the Middle East. 
and we've had significant investment on and around the airport, um, mainly private investment. £90 million investment in DHL makes its expanded facility the third largest air cargo hub in the world after Cincinnati and Leipzig and um, £140 million hub that, D uh, pardon me, that UPS are now building will make East Midlands one of the largest hubs in Europe for them, supporting around 1,000 jobs um, for local people once it's complete later this year. I talk a lot about airports, not just East Midlands, but airports in general and regions having a very symbiotic relationship. If the airport does well, the region does well. And that absolutely is key um, for us at East Midlands. We take our regional role incredibly seriously and we're proud to be the largest employer uh, employment site in the local area. Over 9,500 jobs employed across our airport campus. Um, and we have our own skills academy that's worked for, um, we've worked very much with the local job centres to get predominantly people back to work and returning to work. Um, and we're proud that over the last seven years we've returned around 700 people to work. The challenge for us is we know that there are pockets of unemployment within our region. How do we get those people into the jobs that are here right now and the future jobs that we're going to be creating? So airports must be considered as vital infrastructure across the UK and they are one of the government's best ways of connecting regions, connecting jobs and boasting productivity and trade. Brilliant, thank you very much. Um, lots and lots of content there. Um, Bridget, I might come to you um, first. You talked about having a, both a top-down and a bottom-up approach. Do you think we've got the balance right at the moment between those two, so Tom talked about uh, kind of greater devolution, is, is that something you would like to see as well? Yeah, that's definitely something that I think is very important, that unless we have a properly organised devolutionary process, we won't get the kind of integration which Karen, for example, is talking about. It's not going to happen from Whitehall, it can't, that's just too far away. And I think that's been the big problem for infrastructure decisions over the past 20, 30 years, that it's been too centralised. Uh, it's very difficult, to, people don't like giving up their decision-making capability and that's why they need help, people. Uh, help from everybody in this room and, and elsewhere to try and get that devolution story to work properly. I'm really encouraged by the existence of the you know, sub-national transport bodies. Only one of them so far has statutory um, status, which is Transport for the North. And apart from TFL, of, you know, which is the, the first one, if you like. But there are others. Transport Southeast exists. There's Midlands Connect, as, as we've heard. Um, these, you know, they need to know what they can do, and they need to have budgets <coughs> to do it with. This remains financially incredibly centralised country. Okay, is that something you would like to see as well? Yeah, I think um, you know, if, we, if we look at the decision-making powers across the different bodies, then actually we've got to be really clear on what the roles are and how they are going to be able to deliver that. So um, I've seen over my two years now in, in the Midlands that the, the region come together and it cuts across LEPs, it cuts across um, the East and the West, um, but actually we're unified in where we recognise we need to spend money on infrastructure and the Midlands Engine Rail is, is a key project um, that where we, we know as a region that's exactly where we need it to be. Um, so I wanted to pick up on your point on the kind of 
construction sector. Obviously, we had uh, Carillion's collapse just over uh, two years ago. Um, we've had some of the other firms struggling, and it appears of some of the, the bigger outsourcers, it's the ones who are more service-focused that have turned their business around a bit quicker, and it's the, the construction ones that are still struggling more. Is that a problem that's just endemic to that sector? Is it to, due to government contracting? What's, what's the problem there? Uh, I think it's a kind of a bit of a vicious cycle of factors um, in that sector. Definitely recognise um, the, um, the picture that you're painting there. If you look at average uh, margins in the sector um, over the last couple of years, uh, they've actually been negative, which is not a healthy situation for any sector uh, to be in. And um, I think obviously it's, it's highly competitive uh, and that has brought about some behaviours on behalf of the private sector which haven't been that healthy, people going for, for market share rather than sort of a sustainable bidding um, uh, which would sort of you know, build up the, the sustainability of the industry. Um, but there is, you know, client behaviours have, have caused some of that behaviour as well. So, yeah. um, you know, most of our members have no confidence that... Um, Client, major clients, either in the public sector or the private sector, actually, are actually <coughs> procuring on the basis of value for money. It's uh, normally on the basis uh, of cost, um, and so the natural re response to that is bid as low as you can, and then hope to uh, hope to make up the shortfall in uh, changes to the contract further down the line, which is just you know, remarkably inefficient, and uh, you know we lose out as a result. I think it's really interesting, actually, because there's. I absolutely agree with you, and, and we've got to cut through that cycle. Of course, firms race to the bottom. If the alternative, if you don't get the business, is you, you haven't got any business. So you know that's not very surprising. And there are places where there's it's worked better. So um, bank station upgrade, for example, seems to be going. I mean, there have been some problems. It's very. It's a complicated project, so there are obviously things that go wrong, but the, the contracting mechanism seems to be working well. And there are quite a lot of playbooks for, for making contracts. Just got to make sure that people don't, that, that, that we almost specify what the contracting process should be when we're agreeing what a project should be and how we want it to work. Clearly one of the um, issues with the construction sector is going to be the, the workforce. Um, mm -hmm. We've had news recently from the government about the new kind of points-based immigration system um, post-Brexit. Do you have thoughts on the ability of that system to allow in the people we need to actually build this infrastructure that the government's planning? Uh, big concern, I think, particularly for the construction sector. I think you know, there's we were um, like positive that the the threshold was um, sort of brought down to a level, um, but still, it's going to be fundamentally challenging for sectors like construction that have been. Um, you know, reliance on um, labour from the European Union, uh, and of course we know that the the, the sort of an economically inactive population that are supposed to take up some of those jobs is not, you know, a lot of those people don't have the potential to become economically active and make up that shortfall. Um, so clearly, the sector is going to have to respond, and the sector would have to respond even if we weren't changing the immigration system um, because if we're going to deliver the infrastructure revolution that's going to be a whole lot more funding and you know a whole lot more people needed in the industry and that's going to be, take some reskilling as well particularly if we're going to sort of look at things like modern methods of construction making sure that our infrastructure is geared up towards net zero emissions that's going to take uh, investment um, and you know Circling back to the first argument, there is no spare cash for that investment if we're on wafer-thin margins. So.
care that are there hundreds of thousands of economically inactive people in the East Midlands waiting to start projects? Well, and, and it's really interesting. We've got, you know, if I look just in the immediate vicinity of the airport, we've got very low unemployment. But as I said, there are pockets of um, unemployment in key areas, but they're isolated and they're not connected and not able to get to work. And particularly if you look at the airport industry, where we're asking people to come to work very early in the morning because that's when a lot of the flights are taking place. So we need to look at the transport um, and, and the integrated transport, how we get these people socially mobile that is just going to bring back social benefits in due course. And we're looking for some, you know, we're looking to create um, through potentially free port status where we believe that we are key for that as a hub at the airport, but working very much with um, partners within the region. And it's a regional opportunity to create some high value, high productivity roles, but also we will need um, some you know, low skilled workforce that actually we are the service sector after all, and logistics is going to need a mixture of all. Great, okay, so with that, I'm now gonna open it up to some questions from the audience. Um, can I please ask you to keep them short uh, and that they are in fact questions and not long statements? Um, and could you please say your name and where you're from and just a reminder that this is on the record and I'll take a few at a time. So hands up, so we'll take the, the lady over there in the white. Thanks very much. Um, Una Muirhead from Policy Connect, the other non-partisan um, think tank uh, around here. Um, I was really, really pleased to hear people talking about top-down and bottom-up. We're publishing a report on Wednesday, which is about levelling up industry and manufacturing, and I think we came to the conclusion you couldn't just look either bottom-up or top-down. So, but I've got a couple... So I've got a question on both the top-down bit and the bottom-up bit. The top-down bit is... We've seen how really helpful the um, Climate Change 2050 target has been. Sort of a big strategic target which gives a direction of travel for both industry and government. Is there, do you think, a sort of similar type of target that we could have for, the, let's say, England as a whole, that would kind of really help to kind of bring up the regions in terms of infrastructure and industry? And secondly, on the bottom-up bit, Clearly, Midlands, Northwest, various other bits, you know, where you've got big powerhouses and engines, um, they're doing fine in terms of bringing people together. But what about those more tricky county based areas? You know, can you think, do you think there are some good models there for, you know, the devolution bit and, and how you get that kind of ability at that local, at that not local level, but sort of cross local level? to actually be able to take a big chunk of money and spend it wisely. Great, thank you. And for, also for that reminder that other non-partisan think tanks are available. <laughs> um, we get the uh, gentleman there in the striped suit, thank you. Years ago, the fashion... Um, Sorry, can you say your name? David Lynn, House of Lords. I dabbled in this stuff over the long period of time now, but I'd like to put a question to Bridget. There was a time when there was a very strict way of doing cost-benefit analysis in the World Bank had its way of doing it and other people had their own way of doing it, but at least one would get a rate of return, one would argue about a discount rate and so on. We seem to have gone to that extreme now in the way we're looking at things and election campaign, just say, you know, oh, we like that idea, it's not a good idea, absolutely essential. 
how does it relate to doing the rates of return? I mean, I don't think Treasury okay. must be turning the hair up. Thank you, and we'll just take uh, one more question quickly. Yeah, gentlemen, just there as well. So what I do is I'm not from the House of Lords or anywhere like that. Um, simple question. Why will HS2 take 20 years? Perfect. Okay, so we've, uh, we've got questions on uh, top-down and bottom-up, uh, the use of cost-benefit analysis, and why will HS2 take so long? Um, Bridget, let me start with you on the cost-benefit analysis question. Absolutely. Um, so the rate of return actually needs to be defined in relation to what the benefits are actually going to be or what you expect them to be. That's the costs, hard enough to forecast the costs of something. Uh, the benefits actually accrue over an even longer period, and it depends what they are. So we had what appeared to be a very um, market-leading method for assessing the benefits, for example, of transport systems, which assumed they didn't impact the economy, which actually made it, <coughs> yeah, it, was big, it was intellectually really kind of challenging and interesting thing to do, but it was based on a really limiting assumption. If you're going to take long-term programs, then the whole purpose of doing them is exactly that they will have an impact on the underlying economy. And then the way that you have to think about the benefits becomes much more complicated, uh, much more uncertain, incidentally. So I think we need a different approach to thinking about cost-benefit, which is not ignoring the returns, absolutely not, but which is actually thinking about it in a much more probabilistic way. So one of the ways that I try to think about it for the Commission is where are the investments which are going to have a return no matter pretty much whatever I think about. We might argue about how big it is, so there'll be some ranges there. The investment in broadband, for example, is going to have a return under almost under no circumstance that I can imagine, there may be ones I can't, do I think there isn't going to be a return to investment in, in broadband Wi-Fi communications. I find it quite hard to imagine scenarios in which it's not worth investing in electric uh, vehicle infrastructure, uh, charging points and so on. Again, we can think about the scale of the return. But again, you come back to what the scenarios in which it has a positive one. If I begin to think about hydrogen, well, I'm not so sure. Or drones, we were discussing earlier, I really am very uncertain about whether there's a return. So it becomes much more about thinking about probabilities and uncertainties than it does saying, if my model does that, it's 2.1 and that's worth doing. And if my model says this, it's only 1.7 and it isn't. That, I think, has turned us into... It's, it's, moved us away from sensible attitudes to cost-benefit. But I do think that cost-benefit is absolutely crucial. Can I comment on the, the first question about the, um, the targets? I think that's you know, absolutely uh, a, a, a good point, and I think there's um, multiple targets which would be useful in the infrastructure space, which are probably not um, properly tracked at the moment, you know, looking at things like travel to work areas and expanding them around um, city regions uh, to, to improve connectivity for local people. Uh, broadband connectivity would be very easy to measure, um, you know, the, the access to broadband, indeed that is, but, you know, to set some targets um, across the country for that. But one of the things that I think we should be measuring is definitely on the uh, capacity to deliver and our record at delivering these things. I think 
know, fundamentally at the moment we're probably sort of reliant on the NAO or the Public Accounts Committee to sort of flag up when things have gone wrong, but there's no, we looked last year actually trying to, to produce an infrastructure tracker just to see, you know, how things are on track or not, but we couldn't do it because just getting that information, getting the data together was just a completely, we just, it just wasn't feasible for us, but that seems like something that, you know, there's a public interest in knowing how well we are doing it in delivering this infrastructure on a sort of real-time basis, um, particularly for major projects, um, so that's something that I'd like to, like to see happen. Uh, I'd just add we're currently doing some research on the use of targets in public services, but I think the mechanisms are the same, and one of the potential benefits of targets is it can lead to the collection of data that you wouldn't otherwise collect, and it can enable you to assess performance. Uh, the downside is that is you might collect lots of useless data, you might have people focusing more on the data collection rather than delivering the actual service. Similarly, you know, it brings uh, greater political focus, and that's great if it's focused on the right thing, but a target is kind of necessarily just one aspect of the overall performance that you're probably trying to measure. So you need to be quite careful about how you do it. And indeed, how you can measure whether the thing did what it said it was going to do on the can later, particularly with big programmes, because the world changes so much. Doing an appraisal as to whether you achieved what you thought you were achieving is nightmarish, to be honest. <laughs> but nonetheless, we should be thinking about it. <clears throat> really, just to add, I think that we've got to look at the, the, the big challenges that set out in the National Infrastructure Assessment and understand what we're trying to deliver here and, and, and what we're trying to fix and not look at individual projects and a simple return on investment on the individual projects, but more the wider benefits of, of what, by solving some of those bigger challenges, the, the societal benefits that we're going to get from that. So we need to just expand out and, and also look at what we can then connect back into existing infrastructure. Uh, so there's a couple of things we didn't quite pick up there. So would anyone like to hazard uh, a view on why it is that HS2 is going to take so long? <laughs> I can feel your eyes looking at me. They right? are looking yeah, at me. Yeah, but, um, I think major infrastructure, infrastructure is complex. Uh, HS2 is a very complex scheme. It's, it ha takes a, uh, a long time to, to deliver it. Um, I think you know, from the CBI's point of view, um, even with the length of time that it does uh, take to deliver a programme like uh, HS2, um, it's, it's important to focus on the, the benefits that, that that unlocks as well as the cost and the time that it takes uh, to deliver that. And for, for us, you know, the connectivity of 8 out of 10 of the UK's largest cities, uh, the sustainability benefits of connecting, um, of taking freight off the road and onto the rail system, you know, massive benefits over a hugely long period of time, which um, you know, the CBI has been um, hugely supportive of. I also think HS2 isn't the answer to everything. It's just one part of the jigsaw. So, you know, certainly in the East Midlands, we're saying that we can't wait for HS2 to come along before we then start to look at, at some of the other um, uh, projects, development that we need to take place. And development corporation in the East Midlands that we're looking to, to um, work through now we see HS2 as being the last piece of the jigsaw. So we need to, to recognise that Toton is going to be a key site. Um, we need to do all the other connectivity and, and to start to build up and develop the infrastructure around that. And that will be the last piece of the jigsaw that slots into place. Um, I can't really comment on HS2 at the moment because the NIC is, going, is being asked to look at the phase two and in particular how it integrates with, with those other programmes. 
Um, so watch this space. But I have said that devolution is important, so you're at liberty to come and bend my ear. <laughs> um, on that devolution point, there was a, a, a second question about kind of models for outside of the city oh, yes. regions and in counties. Yeah. Um, I agree it's a challenge, and I don't think we've necessarily got that right yet. Uh, NIC, we've made recommendations about rural broadband, for example, and, and how that should work. It's really in specific areas. So in, in terms of that sort of metric, if you like, for how we get the less intent, you know, the less urbanly dense areas to, to be able to act together, uh, I think that's still a work in progress, so I suggest you keep on it. Okay, let's take a, a few more questions, hands up. Um, we will take uh, one here. Uh, Renee Lavonchi from nowhere in particular. Um, are we um, missing the wood for the trees a bit here? The title is How Can the Government Implement an Infrastructure Strategy? The government hasn't got any strategy, has it? I mean, there's no transport strategy. We don't know if the government wants people to get out of cars and onto public transport. We don't know how they want to decarbonise transport. There's no, it's debatable whether there's an energy strategy. They want to see lots of offshore wind, yes, but. What's going on with nuclear? No idea. What's going on with EV charging? No idea. Uh, there's certainly no social infrastructure strategy. So isn't the government's complete lack of strategy a bit of a problem in implementing an infrastructure strategy for the UK? And before the panel falls back on, oh, but the government's going to deliver, unveil a national infrastructure strategy, do they really think that it will be a strategy? Thank you for that. Um, we'll take uh, one just down there, and then we can take one in the centre. Uh, yeah, uh, Robin McGee from the Royal Academy of Engineering. Um, so how, how does and how should the government's infrastructure strategy incorporate the fact that um, at the moment there's obviously an enormous environmental uh, crisis, um, particularly, of course, climate change, and um, to what extent should it take account of that? Um, bearing in mind the need to reach net zero in emissions in 30 years' time, so 10 years after the alleged uh, finalisation of HS2. Great, thank you. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, gentleman in the middle there. Simon Webb from Nichols Group. Uh, I declare that I'm an independent reporter on the High Speed 2 railway. Um, uh, one of the difficulties we've faced is that the cost and time cost increases and time delays are actually something you discover only when you've done quite a lot of detailed design got a route and, and on discovered the ground conditions on which you're going to be putting the construction industry to work and I think one of the dilemmas I'd like to have asked Bridget to have a go at is how are you going to do this new exercise announced today to look at, the, at, at, at particularly the integration of the Midland side which is very important with the north without actually having a railway which has been designed? How are you going to get decent numbers without actually doing some of the work? I think there's a conundrum here which is worth debating. Great, thank you. Um, Thanks, Simon. <laughs> I might come to you first on mm -hmm. that, uh, particularly on Rene's question about the extent to which you, as a business, feel that the government doesn't currently have a strategy in all those areas that are important and how optimistic you are that we might see a strategic strategy uh, next month? 
So uh, I think you're absolutely right. What we're seeing is that across government departments, there hasn't been the consultation and the working together. If I look at the aviation strategy, aviation strategy alone is not going to solve it. it you know, if we, we look at it, um, other factors that need to be considered around aviation strategy, tax, that would be through the treasury, housing, planning, rail, and the road perspective. You can't look at it on its own. And at the moment, the aviation strategy feels if it's quite isolated. That said, recent consultation um, that's come out for the free ports, it has come from three government departments as a unified consultation. And I think that's a great sign that government's starting to do more of this. And, and already that's brought together transport, um, the treasury and the local um, government departments. So I'm much more hopeful that that's actually going to be much more unified and, and, and deliver an output um, as, as an initiative. I think in terms of the infrastructure strategy, you're right, there's a danger it's just going to be a list of stuff and actually it's, it's not there as a as wholesome um, strategy that really is grasping the big issues that we need to solve and, um, and making sure that we have a plan to do so. So watch this space, but um, I think cross-government department working is really key to this. Tom, anything you'd like to add to that on strategy? Um, yeah, well, I, I mean, we sort of live in hope that it's going to be more than a list, uh, list of projects. I think, you know, actually having some outcomes that you want the infrastructure to deliver uh, is sort of a key part of that. Um, Levelling up is a, a nice kind of soundbitey phrase, but it can mean about 150 different things. So, um, you know, what is the kind of substance behind that? Do we mean actual levelling up? If, if London was to reduce its productivity to level, level up, is that um, sort of achievement of that outcome? You know, so a bit of detail behind the kind of soundbite and that kind of agenda um, would be useful. Um, and just thinking about the sort of environmental question, I, um, I think... You know, we've got a good story to tell in terms of the um, deployment of renewables uh, in this country, but if we're going to meet the net zero target, we're going to need sort of to triple that um, rollout of renewables uh, over the next uh, couple of decades. So, um, you know, that's going to require investment. It's going to cost money. Um, at the moment, the decarbonisation that we have um, achieved has been paid for by our energy bills. Uh, but when decarbonisation is sort of sort of has to go beyond the energy sector through to transport, uh, through to uh, industry, um, then we need to think about how we're going to pay for that um, and make sure that the cost isn't borne by those who are sort of least able, um, able to pay it. But, you know, I think you know, we, could, we have reasons to be optimistic about our record in decarbonising the economy. Um, alongside the national infrastructure strategy, we hope there will be an energy white paper which would answer some of those questions about what we're going to do about new nuclear, which kind of, what kind of technologies are we backing for the decarbonisation of heating our homes. Um, there's some big policy yeah. questions which need to follow up um, the sort of political announcements. Uh, two things. One on, on the sort of net zero and will it be a strategy. The, um, in the Infrastructure Commission, we produce an annual monitoring report. So we think that in doing the assessment, we've got the bones of, of the kind of what a strategy might look like. We're taking on board the net zero challenge in how we're now thinking about our annual monitoring reports and following up. So we're just due to publish one of those in a couple of weeks' time. Um, so having to balance trying to finalise that and what's going to be in the budget but it's a sort of backward looking one about which of our recommendations have been taken forward 
And that includes discussion about energy policy and the role of nuclear and what we're going to do about heat, uh, which is a, a going to be a big problem about what we do with the gas network if we're going to uh, have that uh, into net zero. So I think we've mechanisms for, for keeping some monitoring going on this and, and putting, continue to put government under pressure for it. That's our job, is to be independent and to do that. On, on uh, Simon's question, um, don't know the answer to that yet because we're just starting to think about it, but one of the ways that I'd like to think about these things is almost to turn the question around the other way, which is to say, how wrong do I have to be before I want to, you know, before this thing goes belly up. So I don't know, you can't know, as he said, you get into the project and only then, when you're digging the hole, do you discover that you're trying to dig holes where there are already cables because nobody had a map of those. One of the big problems on the Great Western is that the, the cables have moved around underground in an unpredicted and unpredictable way. So when you started to try and drive piles, you put a hole through the signaling system. Not good. So you can't predict some of that stuff. You might try, but there will always be things that you miss. So how badly wrong do you have to get it before, you want, before the thing isn't worth doing? And I think that is one of the ways to cope with that, those levels of uncertainty. That's what I'll be trying to do. And you're welcome to come and help. I'm sure you <laughs> will. Whether I ask you to or not, that would be great. <laughs> Excellent. OK, uh, let's take um, some further questions. Uh, let's take the lady there. Thank you. Um, Karina Kwame from the Royal Academy of Engineering. Um, this is a question, I guess, directly to the design principles that the NIC uh -huh. published, um, but also to anyone who's interested in placemaking. And I guess because the nature of our work is looking at infrastructure ahead of new housing, and obviously placemaking is something that happens, you know, past, present, but mostly done in the present. So how do you see this strategy really tackling this question of how do we create places where people actually want to live um, and thrive? And what room is there for a wider business case for place that goes beyond your traditional cost-benefit analysis? Great, thank you. Then there was a gentleman in the middle of that day. Thank you. Um, Ray Smith, Freelance. I'd like to ask the panel uh, about the implementation. So the main mechanism was supposed to be the government publishes the national infrastructure strategy, and that's turned into national policy statements. Does the panel think that, which comes from a 2008 uh, law, is, is fit for purpose? And I'll just suggest four reasons why. One is on public engagement. I know, Nick, your institute has published information around that. Second, around whether it's agile enough. So at the moment, we still have energy policy that says build coal power stations, and that probably won't be updated till 2022, which is perhaps a bit embarrassing if we're holding a, a UN climate summit. The third reason it's not, uh, it's very centralized. We've heard discussions about that, and that's also relevant to placemaking, as yeah. the speak before me. And then thirdly, it's uh, very analog. I mean, as uh, Tom has said, there isn't the data compared to, say, MH. CLG for local planning is requiring lots of machine-readable information. So does the panel think that the, the strategic uh, planning framework is, is suitable for really in implementing a, a strategy? Thank you. Thank you. And then uh, one more in the middle, Daniel. Hi, yeah. Uh, Dan Slade from the Town and Country Planning Association. So aside from the question around strategic planning, which I completely agree with, I mean, 
it's absolutely crazy that only three cities outside of London have got genuine statutory strategic plan making powers. Um, in all my experience of working in this area, the key blockage is local resourcing, whether it's combined authority level or local level. So many authorities just simply don't have the capacity to work in the pipeline and deliver these major projects and, crucially, make policy as well, contribute to the policy creation. Um, so to what extent is the answer to the question on the board uh, an effectively resourced local state after about 10 years of um, serious under-resourcing? Brilliant. Thank you. Okay, so three great questions there. Do you want to start on kind of placemaking? Uh, yeah, I think placemaking is, is key to a whole variety of the, the bits that we've um, talked about in these questions. Uh, and thank you for um, mentioning the design principles, which uh, we're very proud of, uh, of trying to put some design into this, uh, into the infrastructure space, because one of the ways in which infrastructure becomes still usable after 100 years is that actually people want to use it and it was well built and well designed. The St Pancrases of this world, uh, you know, they're just fantastic places and they attract people and therefore stuff happens around them. That's really, really important. And that can get missed in things like national policy statements. It's less likely to get missed in local um, planning and local areas. But I don't think that the local planning system is fit for purpose to uh, name check another think tank, the Policy Exchange, I sat on the advisory board for the, the report they've just done on local planning. And I think we've just got this stuff so wrong that it takes so long to produce a local plan that by the time you've done it, it's all out of date and you pretty well have to start again and there's somebody else with other ideas. We've got to get something that's more agile, more flexible, less, um, less sort of semi-nationalizing the, the, uh, the land that we've got. Um, and there's some ideas about that which are not for today, but I think that, that if you could go that better, actually you could free up some of the resources that exist within local authorities instead of them just continually working this treadmill of the local plan. National policy statements probably also need to be thought about a little bit as well, particularly since the way that DCOs are working. I'm not sure that's, it, that's got a little bit bogged down as well and can take forever, so it's now getting a toss-up whether it's worth going for a DCO or an ordinary planning, uh, a planning application. Um, so we just, keep, we just pile so much stuff into these things. And the real challenge with all of this, whether it's infrastructure or anything else, is to get back to some basics and think, you know, again, what's good design? What's a good place look like? Thank you. Tom? Yeah, I, th I think, um, you know, very much a fan of sort of um, locally planned places uh, integrating housing and infrastructure. Mm. Um, certainly not a sort of uh, liberalist who wants to wants to see sort of the, the free market decide what is built where. Um, and I think, but to do that successfully, you do need the sort of joining up the first and the third question. You do need to have the proper resource at local level to deliver um, local plans. And you know the sad truth is there's. Um, a sort of a criminally small proportion number of up-to-date local plans in place um, and that just leaves business in a sort of feeling of limbo that they don't know what they they can provide in those in those communities so I absolutely think that if we are going to gear up capital spending over the next periods it there's no point doing that unless you've got the delivery capability at a local local level to, to plan for how you spend that wisely. Um, 
and yeah, so, so I'd, I'd hope that any, any moves to, uh, to increase sort of is, is on both sides of, of the equation there. Um, on the sort of national planning, planning um, national policy statements, I think um, actually, you know, there, there is a role of the centre to sort of set a set an outcome that they want to see for things like energy policy. I think, you know, to decide, um, you know, what we're going to do with nuclear power is uh, over the next 10 years is a very important national-based decision which needs to be taken by um, central government. Um, in terms of the sort of delivery of getting those statements agreed through parliament, I think there probably is um, room to think um, creatively how, about how we do that more uh, agile, agilely in the future. I've already mentioned the development corporation work I'm going on in the yeah. East Midlands and I think this yeah. is really key. Um, it's looking at placemaking centred around the Toton HS2 station but also it's brought in two other key sites, one being the airport and the Radcliffe on Saw power station um, where really it's around how we create um, inward investment, how we create jobs and actually how that benefits the region as a whole. So it's not certainly not focused on the, um, the sites just growing, it's just that they are key enablers for regional growth and I think that's incredibly important. I think uh, you know, that's how we're going to get true economic benefits, we'll have the right governance structure, we can take ownership of funding and actually spend wisely in the right ways at the right time, but it does need that long-term vision that we're working through currently. Would that be one of the biggest development corporations ever, if you could get that through? I think it probably will be, actually. Um, it's quite a big geography, isn't it? It, it is a large geography, and, and it is very much regional. Yeah. It's working, whilst the three sites are relatively neat area, the benefits go um, quite broad. So I think it's yeah. you know, it's fantastic, exciting opportunity. And I think the East Midlands has been very much criticised in the past for you know, the cities, the counties, not working together, different political persuasions. This is about all the um, local authorities coming together. It's about industry, it's about the, the, um, the CBI, other bodies being involved. I've never seen the region as united behind one initiative as what this that's is. And I genuinely think that that's the way to get, get yeah. things moving forward. Great, let's have one more final and very quick round of questions. We'll take uh, the gentleman there at the back in the purple, then there, and then there. Uh, Hugh Lloyd. Uh, in the dim and distant, I was involved in the creation of the, of the Planning Act 2008 and the MPPSs and all of those things, and it just struck me that they were all invented before the crash. For a completely different world and outlook, they were invented before perhaps even 80% carbon reduction, but certainly before net zero. And I wonder whether the question we should be debating is not how, but whether. This should be a bottom-up, engaged, place-based process, perhaps using de development corporations, that recognises not only the infrastructure for business and growth, but the, biz the infrastructure, green and industrial, shall we say, that will prevent the flooding disasters that half of the country has seen in the last two months. Thank you. And before. Okay, thank you. Uh, gentleman there with the hand up. Um, hi, Zachary Wise from uh, Oxford Economics. Um, so on the subject of green energy stuff, I just wondered what you thought of a sort of more radical idea of replacing all domestic flights with, um, well, trains or whatever else. And also, just quickly a note on maybe um, on uh, electric engines in planes and accelerating those through. What's, what are your thoughts on how that could be done? 
Great, thank you. And then just uh, the final question here. Uh, Martin Wheatcroft, uh, Chartered Accountant and Advisor on Public Finances. Um, so I had uh, two very quick questions. So one, quick, was, one was just on the thoughts on the, um, the new contracting approach for public-private partnerships, uh, replacing PFI and PF2, if there, if there is any desires for how that might look. Uh, and the second one, uh, poor financial management on these major projects, is it poor estimation or poor management? Great, Karen, I might come to Can you first on whether we should... Electric planes yes. and electric... So as an industry, we know we've got challenges and we've got a long way to go, but the industry is working together. Very proud, East Midlands Airport was the first carbon neutral airport for operations in the UK, but that said, um, you know, to get to where we need to get to by 2050 and, and earlier, um, there's a lot to be done. Sustainable Aviation Group is um, the industry coming together, airports, airlines and uh, the OEMs uh, produ producing the aircraft coming together to really work out how to, to address this. There's a lot to do. We know that, um, again, we've got some great advanced manufacturing, Rolls-Royce, for instance, working on the first electric engine, um, drones. We've got drone operators who are looking on uh, um, drones to transport people around all within the East Midlands region. Um, and, you know, the, the electrification of uh, aircraft Short haul, I think that will come quite soon. Small journeys, you know, we've, we need to look at how we're going to address the more long haul, and I think that will come from more sustainable fuels and looking at things in a different way. But the industry is working on it, and uh, I have to say that whilst there's a long way to go, we're starting to make moves in the right direction. Tom, do you want to particularly pick up that point on the kind of government's new approach to private finance after PFI and PF2? Yeah, I, I think... Um, you know, there have been many reports written about the sort of um, shortcomings of PFI, PF2 and value for money for taxpayers. But it is worth noting just how much social infrastructure was delivered under that um, financing model. And it is really important in terms of signalling to the industry, yeah. you know, that we do have a sort of branded way of doing things um, in the UK. And actually that that's generated so much expertise and knowledge in the UK, which we risk losing out to other destinations if we don't have um, a model which can attract private finance. And I think it's probably going to be a sort of horses for courses situation with different models used for different types of infrastructure in the future. There's just sort of a lot of um, uh, excitement around sort of using the regulated asset-based model in, um, in more uh, scenarios than it has, done, has been used previously. Um, it's not a silver bullet. Sorry to sort of roll out that um, catchphrase at a policy event, but there's, it's going to be a horses for courses scenario. Um, and I think what would be useful is just a, a document from the government which kind of set out how it intends to provide a model for financing infrastructure in the different infrastructure classes come the budget. Bridget. Um, I believe that we are expecting a response on the infrastructure finance review, so we should watch that space. The NIC, we put evidence into that. Um, not a fan of the RAB model myself, but that's just personal position. Uh, although it's, it's had some positive feedback. So perhaps I should just, uh, on this estimation and management, usually when things go wrong, there's a bit of both. But I think one of the big things which actually pulls that together is that we haven't really established an agreed governance system for major projects with people who really know what they're doing sitting in there. We just, and when, when, it's, so when it goes wrong, we seem to reinvent yet another 
system of assurance or additional governance, an assurance panel is, is what we're now going to have. And I'm not sure that that's really, what we actually really need to build is just the expertise in people who know how to do these, these sorts of large projects. And those large projects are the, are the national ones. So we can't, we shouldn't, um, um, we need more devolution, but it's not an answer to everything. And we still need some national things as well. We need to think about how we're connecting all the different uh, regions and the different cities, as well as encouraging them to have their own, uh, their own positions as well. That requires real, the more complex negotiation than coming along with the, with the big stick of central government. And we're all going to have to learn how to do that. Brilliant, thank you. So with that, I'm going to bring it to a close. Uh, I'm sure you've already read it, but if you haven't done so, please do read our capital spending report that's out today. And if you've got a greater thirst for infrastructure reports, we have seven others on topics such as uh, cost-benefit <laughs> analysis, the role of the NIC, private finance, uh, and more. Um, I'd like to thank you all for attending today. And um, there will be some uh, drinks uh, afterwards, so stick around if you can. Um, my particular thanks to Midlands Connect uh, for partnering with us <laughs> on this event, and I hope you'll all join me in thanking our three fantastic panellists.